Alternative interests. Still, we're back. Yay! Yay! <laughs> Cat crawled out of hiding for I did like two hours. Just yeah, I'm in it. Yeah, I'm gonna grace your presence, and then that's it. <laughs> and I'm gone. So starting hole. I'm gonna crawl back into my hole. I'm starting my timer now. <laughs> okay, I got thirty seconds for free. Yeah. Score. All <laughs> right. So, um, I have. An update on um, an episode that I covered quite a while ago, actually. Oh, which one? Um, so this was on the Savannah Spurlock case. This was episode 51. Oh, the girl um, at the bar? Yes. That left the bar with those guys? Okay, yes, yes. I remember. So someone who lives in that town uh, actually messaged me, and they have a little bit of an inside scoop, and they were able to answer some questions that you and I had like while we were talking. Oh, so uh, they said that they re- prefer to remain anonymous. So um, I'm trying to keep them anonymous. And you remember this case, but a really quick overview was just that Savannah was a, a young single mom. And one night she decided to go out drinking with her friend and uh, they went to a bar. She ended up leaving with a couple guys she met at the bar that night. There was surveillance footage that was kind of creepy of her leaving with them. And she was never seen again. Okay. And they were able to determine that one of the men that she left with uh, killed her and buried her in the world's shallowest grave on his parents' land. That's right. Uh, Yes. This listener gave me several things, and they're kind of all over the board, and I really appreciate how thorough they were. So, first off, the name of the bar that Savannah and her friends went to was The Other Bar. And I remember you and I kind of liked that. Yeah. She actually – the listener actually told me that um, the bar was named The Other Bar because Uh it's right next door to a bar named Two Keys. So, I think that's kind of clever. Like – if you're if you're gonna go meet up with your friends and you're like, hey, let's go to the bar, and they're like, are we gonna go to Two Keys? We're like, no, we're gonna go. To no, the we're gonna other go bar. to the other bar. Okay, I got that now. I was sitting here going, Two Keys, the other bar. Two Keys. Is it the? Maybe they should have named it One Key, Two Key, or the other key. But now I get it. Okay. Yeah, I'm good. I also think um, a bar is a musical term, so keys and bar, and they oh, just go together. yes, oh. <laughs> It was very clever. I actually like this. It is very clever. Um, So David Sparks was the name of the man that was convicted and sentenced for Savannah's murder. And another character was Jason, David's cousin. Remember, Jason was um, one of the family members that when police were really honing in on David, Jason was spreading rumors about Savannah and her character and saying that she was just a party girl and she probably just walked out on her kids and she's not really missing and all of that. Oh, that's right. Okay. There's actually speculation among people in Lexington, Kentucky, that Jason was also at the bar with David and these two other people. 
oh. which I, I thought was, it plays into one of the theories. Yeah. I'll go over in a minute. Okay. So there's actually two theories in public opinion down there, at least according to the listener who messaged me. Okay. The first theory is David did it. The second theory is David did not do it. So who did it if he didn't do it? Uh, so the people who say that David did it say that the whole story kind of as you and I covered it, Savannah went to his house. And remember I mentioned that the other two guys were showing off videos of Savannah in sexually explicit uh, ways that they uh-huh. had taken because she had performed things on them. Oh. Apparently, one of the beliefs is that this is true. All of this happened. But she rejected David. Oh. She performed whatever acts on these two other men. But David, she said no. And so David, with his fragile little boy ego, got pissed off at being rejected, snapped and killed her. Oh. Well, yeah, um, I can see that a little bit. There was um, rumors that I was talking about about these two guys were bragging and showing these videos that kind of plays into this theory that uh, while they were bragging and talking about the things that Savannah had done, he would get worked up and angry because it would just remind him that she had done it with them and not with him, which I just thought was kind of interesting. That is interesting. And I know that you and I talked about also that we were wondering like why these other two men were never really suspected of anything. Yeah. Uh, apparently, there was surveillance footage of them leaving the home, as well as surveillance footage of them at like a gas station somewhere else. And the listener didn't say this, but my speculation is that the timeline of these uh, surveillance footage matches up with the timeline of David's neighbor hearing screams coming from his house. And that's how they were ruled out as being involved, is that they were somewhere else when the screams were happening. Oh, okay. That makes sense. The other theory, the people that say David did not do it, say that it was actually Jason, but that the Sparks family knew that Jason would never survive in prison, and so they made David a fall guy, and David covered for him, and this is the explanation why David never explains why he killed Savannah. Because remember, that was a big thing that everyone was like, David never came and say, said why. He never gave a motive. He never said why he killed her. It's because he covered for his cousin. Uh, why would anyone agree to be the fall guy for anyone and face pr- – do you know what I'm saying? Like, that seems a little far out there. I, I mean, mean, even the, the, the most giving and, like, I don't know, even if you have to be a people pleaser, but I couldn't see anyone doing that. The listener alluded to the Sparks family being very powerful – and so I get the feeling David would not have had the choice. Oh. So I thought well, that was what pretty a sh- interesting What a too. shitty a shitty deal. I mean, it's a shitty deal for the girl anyways, but what a shitty deal for to not uh, commit the crime but still serve right. for it. Yep. Um, also, there was a comment that I made in the timeline of things that um, – David's father, uh, his property was the one that Savannah was buried on. And I had said that David's father called the police because he smelled a foul odor on his land. That's only partially true. Apparently, David's father actually called a lawyer first. And the lawyer was like, you got to call the cops. 
Like, if you smell something, call the cops. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then as well, police were on his property digging up the land when David was actually turning himself in. Oh. Hmm. So I I appreciate the clarifications. Mm -hmm. And then also one other thing that you and I had talked about at the very end was where are her kids? I hope the kids are okay. Yeah. Um, I guess the oldest child Savannah's father has custody of. Okay. And then her three younger children, the twins and another child, those children's father has custody of them. Okay. So they're all in safe, loving hands. I think all the children are good, which was a concern you and I had. Yeah. And that's nice, but still. Okay. I mean, they don't have their mother. Exactly. They're still with family, which is Yeah. 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 So that was um, just a quick update on that. I really liked all the information and it was interesting to hear another theory um, about this whole Jason thing because Jason played such a small part in our original story. He was really just a shitty little gossip mill. But Uh if he had more to do with it, that would be interesting to hear about. Yeah. Yep. So that is it for um, my right. Savannah Spurlock update. And now... Thanks for the update. Now I can get to my actual episode. And this was completely not intentional. But, you know, Kat can't give you guys life nuggets anymore. So I'm going to give I you can't. one. I, I still could. Well, let me enjoy this for a minute because I don't <laughs> usually have them. Oh, that's right. Okay. tell everybody when a case is is known as a crime of the century block out parts of your life because (laughs) i was not prepared for how much information there was in this case um this is your life nugget yes if if something is if so outright if like you're you're curious and you start googling something and one of the first returns says crime of the century just block out a big chunk of your life you're gonna go down a rabbit hole or do it cat does and skips it and (laughs) a different case (laughs) i mean i started researching this case and like i was like oh it can't be that bad and then because i mean i started with the wikipedia page sorry just saying it out loud because i'll usually skim it to see how much information there is and then i'll go elsewhere for actual Uh stuff so i'm reading a book on this case which i don't do very often yeah holy hell there's so much information so today I'm going to start telling you about Richard Speck. Okay. Does the name sound familiar? It does sound familiar. I know where you're. I've seen the Netflix documentary. Oh, isn't there I one? Didn't even know that was a thing. There. Yep. Uh huh. There's a big Netflix doc. There's like a uh, tons of stuff. So yes, I know who you're talking about. Yeah, I um, I didn't know anything about this case. I only knew the name. And yeah, how did you not know about this case? I don't know. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay. I don't know. So- I will say what I do know about this case is just from the documentary, so I'm eager to get into more. Um, oh, my info. God. So I'm just I'm telling you all right now, I have 13 pages of notes, Jeez. and none of those even touch the murder yet. So holy moly. Part one is mostly background. And it is a hell of a background, let me tell you. So let's talk about Richard. Richard Speck was born in 1941 in Kirkland, Illinois, to parents Benjamin and Mary. Benjamin 
was a manual laborer. He worked as a farmer, logger, and in the last years of his life, he worked as a packer at Western Stoneware. So he was always into very physical labor. Okay. Ma- uh, Mary was very religious and a teetotaler. I had no idea what the hell this was, so I had to look it up. It's a fancy word for someone who doesn't drink. Oh, a teetotaler. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that's the gist of it. If it's more complicated than that, I apologize. But I like looked at like Webster's Dictionary and Wikipedia, and it was a person who refrains from alcoholic drink. That's what she was. Richard was the seventh of eight children, and he and his younger sister, Carolyn, were much younger than the older six children. So there's a big divide here. Richard was reportedly very close to his father, and there's not actually a whole lot of information on his relationship beyond that he was close to him, because in 1947, at 53 years old, Benjamin actually died of a heart attack. Who, at 47? Did you uh, at say? 53. Oh, 53. I think 1947. Oh, 1947. Wow, that's still young at 53. And Richard was six years old and he lost his father. Mm, that's sad. It's very sad. Yeah. A few years later in 1950, Richard's mother ended up marrying a man named Carl August Rudolph Lindbergh. Okay. It's a lot of names. That is uh, a lot. She met Carl on a train ride to Chicago. Hmm. Carl was an interesting choice on Mary's part because, like I said, she was a teetotaler. She was very religious, and Carl could not have been more opposite. Carl had a 25-year criminal record that included forgery and DUI charges. And like I said, Mary doesn't drink, so the fact that she's marrying someone who has DUI charges in his past. I mean, people can change, but I'm going to tell you right now, Carl didn't change. Okay. Carl was a heavy drinker. And Mary ended up moving to Texas to be with Carl. Richard and Carolyn ended up staying with one of their older siblings in Illinois to finish out the school year uh, before moving to Texas to live with their mother and Carl. Okay. Um, they live just west of Fort Worth, which is um, like central south east Texas. Okay. I had to like cross my eyes and think of my geography for a minute. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Richard started third grade there. So that just All gives right. you an idea of how young he was when this happened. Okay. In 1952, tragedy strikes the family again when the oldest son – so Richard's oldest sibling, Robert, uh-huh. died in a car accident at 23 years old. Oh, man. So this family in the span of just a few years lost the father and the oldest son. Carl was a traveling insurance salesman. So the family ended up moving around a lot. Over the next 12 years, the family would move 10 times, Jeez. usually living in very poor neighborhoods. So that's like once a year they're moving yeah, it's a lot. Man. Um, not really surprising. Carl was a verbally abusive drunk, and he was gone a lot of the time. I get a feeling that some of this was due to the nature of his work, but a lot of it was due to the fact that he was always drinking. Okay. I, I don't know why this seems funny to me, but this is a, a little humorous to me, and maybe it's just karma. But he lost, he lost the bottom half of his left leg in an accident, 
so he was forced to hobble around on crutches to get around. Okay. I think this also contributed to, like, his anger. Uh, yes, I could see why. He couldn't, um, no prosthetic or anything like that? I don't know if he could afford a prosthetic, to be honest. Okay. They, I, they weren't I, the most well off. I assumed that was covered by insurance, but then I don't even know if they have insurance, right? So I guess that's Yeah, I mean, sense. this is the early 1950s. I don't know what healthcare is like back then. It's yeah. not good. Yeah. Especially for a traveling insurance salesman. I don't even know what kind of insurance he sold. Sold? Huh. Sold. Sold? Yeah, jeez. Do broken. you want another life nugget? Holy moly. <laughs> he would go on drunken tirades fairly often, and the author of the book that I'm reading, which is a really long title and I'll, I'll tell you what it is at the end of the episode because I didn't write it down. Um, this author described Carl as a professional drunk. Oh, wow. I didn't know there was such a profession. <sighs> uh, maybe Carl started it. He was the first. Uh, I apparently. I don't know. Really sadly, Carl actually reportedly despised Richard and refused to adopt him. I don't know if this means he adopted Carolyn and not Richard, but can you imagine how shitty that would be? That you what? The stepfather adopting uh -huh. one sibling but not the other. That is horrifyingly awful. I I don't know if that's what happened, but the book I read said specifically that Carl refused to adopt Richard. I don't know if that means he refused both children or just Richard. I get the feeling it might have been just Richard. I hope it was both children and not just Richard. Or yeah. maybe it was a thing that, like, yeah, that's awful. Yeah. Um, there was also uh, allegations of physical abuse. I didn't see anything that really substantiated it. It was mostly verbal abuse. But there were definitely threats because Carl would tell Richard that he couldn't stand the sight of him and he would threaten to, quote, bash his head in with one of his crutches. Oh, no. And this is a child. Like, Richard is not in a good place. I don't like this guy. This I don't step either. Dad. Yeah, he sounds bad. Yeah, so in the presence of this fantastic role model, Richard started drinking at a very young age. And this actually reminds me, when I, as I was reading this, this reminded me a lot of Jeffrey Dahmer. Yeah. Uh, Jeffrey Dahmer started drinking at a really early age. Um, Carl's, nope. Richard's first drink was at 13 years old when he broke into Carl's secret liquor cabinet and drank whiskey. Oh. That is a hard drink to choose that, at 13 years that old. That is. I don't even know how you could develop a taste for that at 13. I don't either, but apparently he did. And by the time he was 15, he would be drunk almost daily. Oh, gosh. At 13, he started that? Yes. That's sad. And to pick whiskey to like, because obviously you're self-medicating, right? At that point. Oh, yeah. That like, like. But also he, I think a little bit of it was about rebellion. Uh, Yeah. And self-medicating. And there's a lot of trauma there to, to do that oh, that yeah. early. And with a drink like whiskey too. Uh, instead of going for like beer or something like that, he went for the hard stuff. So I don't know. Yeah. Um. Later on. Uh, Richard's parole officer said that when Richard was drinking, he would threaten and fight anyone as long as he had a knife or a gun on him. 
which uh-huh. he usually did. But if he was sober or unarmed, he couldn't face down a mouse. Oh, that's so weird. I think some of this was also a coping mechanism that when Carl is constantly berating him and threatening him, um, I think maybe at first it was about curiosity, but something about drinking gave Richard this courage that he didn't have. And all, all uh-huh. I mean, it gave him too much. He swung far in the other direction. But I also wonder if some of his early heavy drinking developed as a habit because it was the only thing that gave him um, a sense of being able to protect himself. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's just a connection I made that – I mean, it turns makes- out bad later, but I wonder if it started that way. I'm I'm sure you're on to something there. Yeah, that's how it started. Um, Richard fell in with a crowd of older boys that were really not a very good influence on him. He was arrested for the first time also at 13 years old for trespassing. And this was followed by dozens of arrests and misdemeanors over the next eight years. This probably won't surprise you either, but Richard really struggled with school. Uh, He needed reading glasses, but Richard was very vain and he kind of refused to wear them. So that affected his schoolwork. Oh my goodness. He ended up repeating eighth grade. And I saw this, it was attributed to two things. He refused to speak in class, but he also had a fear of people staring at him. So like he was very self-conscious and very vain. So I think he didn't speak up in class because usually when people talk, you look at him. I just he he ended up having to repeat eighth grade because he just did not perform well. They don't do that anymore, you know. They don't have kids repeat that level. Really? It just yep, send them on through. Huh. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, unless there's like a unless a parent requests it and there's like a whole like process that you go through in order to like have that happen but yeah that rarely happens isn't there standardized testing at eighth grade though yeah but that doesn't the standardized testing doesn't uh count against you but if you don't pass it you don't get held back no Uh uh-uh oh i swear it used to be that way when i was younger if you didn't pass that standardized test you did not move on to the next grade no, that's that's against uh, so many laws right there. Uh-uh. Really? No. Yeah. It has to be upon parent request. Now, high school is different because now high school you I mean, that's school, different because to, you have to earn a certain number of you credits You have to earn stuff, a certain but... amount of credits, but not in middle school and not in seventh or sixth, seventh, eighth. Wow, because we were always told that the whole point of standardized tests, and we have gotten so far off topic, but we were always told that the point of standardized tests was to make sure that you were learning the things that you were supposed to learn at the right points. And so the standardized check point was like a, the standardized test was a checkpoint. And if you didn't pass the checkpoint, you couldn't go on to the next grade. Nope. Uh-uh. And man, no. they were just scaring us for no reason. Well, Yeah. Totally. So that you took the test seriously and you actually tried your best. I mean, if a a kid thinks a test doesn't matter, they're not going to care about it. I mean, it didn't matter for me. It actually held me back because they were teaching me stuff that I I was perfectly fine in, but I couldn't learn any faster because advanced placement didn't exist at that age. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, moving on. Anyway. Um, Richard began ninth grade in 1957. 
but he failed every subject and he ended up dropping out by January of 1958, just after his 16th birthday. So he's, he's not doing so hot. Okay. By 1960, Richard was living and working in Dallas and he actually worked for the 7-Up Bottling Company. Oh, okay. I just thought that was interesting. He worked there until 1963. Wow. Like on the assembly line of the... I'm not really sure. He just worked for them. Okay. Um, October of 1961, he met a 15-year-old girl named Shirley Annette Malone at the Texas State Fair and they started dating. Oh. At this point, Richard was 19, almost 20, and she was 15. I know okay. this is different times, but that's yeah, still, that's still a very a big, big gap. Age differ- yeah, age yeah. difference. Uh, Shirley became pregnant fairly quickly. My math actually puts it around three weeks of dating was oh. when she became pregnant. Okay. They were married January 19th, 1962, and they moved in with Richard's sister, Carolyn, and her husband. Um, Their mother, Mary, was also living in this home because at this point she had actually separated from Carl. Oh, okay. Which is probably the smartest thing she did, honestly. Yeah. Um, Richard and Shirley welcomed their daughter, Robbie Lynn Speck, to the family on July 5th, 1962, which that name is really cute. Really cute. Unfortunately, Richard was not present at the time of his daughter's birth. Where was he? He was serving a 22-day jail sentence for disturbing the peace while drunk. Oh, well, you know. <laughs> yeah. Just 22 days. Like, yeah. it's okay. I mean, it, it was like the exact wrong 22 days. It, yeah, for sure. Uh, Richard continued adding to his criminal record in July of 1963 because he stole a coworker's $44 paycheck, cashed it, and then robbed a grocery store for cigarettes, beer, and $3. Oh, my goodness. I did the conversion on this because I was like, okay, $3 sounds like nothing. Maybe it's worth something. It ends up being like $9 in today's money. It's still not worth it. Yeah, not, not worth it at all. Yeah. So he was convicted of forgery and burglary and subsequently sentenced to three years in prison. Okay. After serving 16 months at Texas State Penitentiary, he was released on parole after serving 16 months. One week later, he attempted to attack a woman with a 17-inch carving knife in the parking lot of her apartment building. Why? Was he trying to rape her or just attack her? I have no idea. Because she saw him, she screamed, and she ran off. Police responded pretty quickly and arrested him a few blocks away. Oh, that's a rather large knife. That is a very large knife. Like, I think yeah. that's a, the, the blade is like the size of your forearm. That is a huge knife. Yeah. Good Lord. Um, I don't know what someone's doing with a knife that big. I don't think my kitchen knives are even that big, but I don't know. So he was convicted of aggravated assault and sentenced to 16 months plus an adi- uh, additional six months for the parole violation. He was released after serving six months due to a clerical error because that was when the parole violation was complete. And for some reason, the additional 16 months just didn't get registered, so he was let out. Oh, okay. Texas justice system for the win again. I've covered a lot of cases where we don't like Texas. (laughs) I know. Well, Texas and Florida have a really bad rap. Yeah. 
Um, he started working as a driver for the Patterson Meat Company. He was not a very good driver. He was in six accidents in the company truck in three months that he worked for them. That's about... In three months? Six, six accidents? accidents, yes. Did they fire him? That's not why he was fired, but yes, they did fire him. Jeez. You want to know why he was fired? Why? Failure to show up for work. And not the six accidents? No. Jeez. Holy moly. Yeah. Uh, December of 1965, Richard's mother recommended that he move in with a woman to help babysit her three children. I, for the life of me, I cannot understand how this arrangement came about. This woman was 29 years old. She was going through a divorce. She was an ex-professional wrestler and she was a bartender at Richard's favorite bar. Oh. I don't know how it came up in conversation that like she needed a babysitter and at why she chose Richard, man who sits at the bar every night, to do it. But somehow he ended up moving in with her for a short time and helping her with her child. Okay. In case you're wondering, because I haven't mentioned Shirley, his wife, and his daughter in a while, it's because in January – Shirley left him and filed for divorce. Uh, well, I would hope so. After you told me that last part of information about him and the other girl he met, I was hoping he wasn't with uh Yeah, first, it's, first it's wife. because they were separated that he needed a place to live and how he okay. ended up living with it. But I'm, I don't, as much as I've read, the, the story just does not connect for me. I don't know. Yeah, but yeah. that was a thing for a minute there. Okay. In January of 1965, Richard stabbed a man with a knife at his favorite bar. So he got in another bar fight and was arrested and charged with aggravated assault. Oh, gosh. How old is he now? Um, Good Lord. 1965. I think he's 24. Oh, this man and his life. His mother hired a defense attorney for him who got the charges reduced to disturbing the peace. How'd she do? How did the defense attorney do that? That's a damn good defense attorney. Seriously, I would keep Stabbing that guy. a man is disturbing would, the peace. I would keep that guy on retainer. Richard should have. Seriously. Oh, Lord. As a result, because this charge got reduced, he was only sentenced to pay a $10 fine. That's it? Guess what he didn't do? He did not, not pay, pay the $10, the $10 fine. fine. Oh, my God. So he was tossed in jail for three days. <sighs> But I thought you were going to tell me he stole the $10. Oh my God. <laughs> no, because, I mean, he stabbed a man and he only served three days. That seems like a pretty good deal for Richard. That fine? $10? That's ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, so on March 5th, Richard bought a used car and then proceeded to no, go rob he didn't a grocery even have... store. <laughs> he did. Oh my God. How did he buy the car? I mean, just because he wouldn't pay the fine doesn't mean he didn't have the money. He just didn't well, pay the fine. Well, obviously, if he had money to buy a car and now he's going to go steal more money, he's like... He ha no, he, he did not rob the grocery store for money. He robbed them of 70 cartons of cigarettes. Oh, my gosh. And do you... Oh, my God. The balls on this man. 
He then proceeded to sell the cigarettes out of his trunk, which is, you know, ballsy <laughs> to begin with. But he did it out of the parking lot of the grocery store he stole them from. Oh, my God. What an idiot. I mean, he sold them and he made money. I guess. So then he abandons the vehicle, which, of course, was found because it's right fucking there. And police traced it back to him because he actually bought it instead of stealing it. So <laughs> he left this whole paper trail. I love how so, how Richard picks and chooses what he does lawfully right? and what he does. Oh my goodness! Okay. Oh my god! Yeah. So the Dallas police issued a warrant for his arrest on March eighth. Okay. But on the ninth, his sister took him to the bus station where he hopped on a bus to Chicago. So Dallas police never actually arrested him for this last offense. Oh well, thanks to his sister. All right. In total. Richard was arrested 41 times during his stay in Dallas. So prior to the three strikes and you're out, obviously. Oh, my God. I guess that yeah. has to be huge crimes for the three yeah, strikes. Yeah, those are federal. And I think this is before yeah. three strikes laws anyway. Well, don't you think at like number 24 or 25, a judge, ju the judge who is like, or one of the judges who's like looking over these, you know, charges is going, mm, Maybe he needs a little bit more help than just, you know, repetitive. Maybe more than a $10 fine this time. Guys. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But I mean, Dallas is a big city. So who's to say that there wasn't different jurisdictions that he was getting arrested in? True. But I'm pretty sure your file has everything in it, doesn't it? Not if you're not. crossing jurisdictions. Yeah. And I guess especially in the internet, 1960s. Yeah. With. Yeah, that's true. So once Richard arrived in Chicago, he stayed with his older sister, Martha, and her family. Um, now, remember, the older siblings were a lot older, older than Richard. So the older siblings had never experienced life with Carl. Oh, okay. Oh, that's right. Because they were gone. So they didn't yep. know about how horrible Carl was. Yeah. So okay. as a result, Martha was actually a devout teetotaler as well. Oh. And Richard was not allowed to drink in her home. Well, good for Martha. I don't think he committed any crimes in Chicago, which is a freaking miracle if you ask me. Shocker, yeah. Um, he, he returned to his early childhood hometown in Monmouth, Illinois. Okay. And when he got there, he actually stayed with some old family friends for a few days. Okay. One of his older brothers named Howard actually still lived and worked in the area and helped Richard get a job as a carpenter. So he had gainful employment, arguably good employment. Being a yeah, carpenter is a good job. Sounds like things are looking up. Shirley was granted her divorce from Richard on March 16th, 1966. Okay. And she remarried on March 18th. Yeah, she was probably with somebody before that, and rightfully so. And they were separated for a while, so she found yeah. someone who took care yeah. of her. And this is Good. the last I really hear about Shirley. Richard found out about this, found out that she got married so quickly after the divorce was granted, and he got yeah. angry. And Richard being angry is a common theme here. He's just an angry man. Okay. Well, sorry, Richard. You obviously did a few things that granted uh surely moving on but anyways. just a few yeah 
41, but who's yeah, keeping four, count? Who cares? 41 at least. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to turn into more in a minute here. Sorry, just, sorry just she, didn't, she didn't think you were a winner, but let's move on. She made the right choice. Richard is in Monmouth, and he moves into the Christie Hotel on the 25th okay. of March. And he spends most of his time when he's not working in taverns. This, again, is very normal for Richard. He likes to drink. So one night, he and some friends were bar hopping, and Richard reportedly threatened a man with a knife. And so he and his friends were all detained overnight. I'm pretty sure they were just thrown in the drunk tank. Yeah. Pretty sure you should do something more with the drunk man that's threatening people with a knife, but I'm not a policeman, so who? what do I know? Yeah. Anyway, this is the beginning of Richard's Illinois crime saga. Oh, because okay. we close the door on the Dallas crime saga and we're starting it in Illinois. And we pick it back up in Illinois. Let's see what he's got for us in old Chicago. Is oh, old. man. Um, that, a doozy Illinois. of something right now. <laughs> okay, here we go. On April 3rd, a lovely 65-year-old woman was returning home oh. from babysitting. What? She had been babysitting that night. It was about uh, 12.20 a.m. Or no. Okay. I think for her, it was actually closer to 1 a.m. Sorry. When she was returning home from this babysitting job. Like in a car or walking? Um, I'm not really sure. She came into her home. Okay. Okay. And she found a knife-wielding burglar in her home. Let me guess. Let me guess. It's Richard. Oh, God. We actually don't know. What? Um, this man blindfolded her, tied her up, raped her, ransacked her home, and stole the money that she had earned babysitting that night. Which, That's by sad. the way, $2.50. It's very so, obviously not about the robbery for him. No, no. It's about the, the crime. So we don't know that this was Richard? Not right now. Was, okay, okay. She described this man as a six foot tall, and this is a quote. She said, a six foot tall, very polite white man who spoke softly with a southern drawl. Oh. He was very polite while he was. At least he was polite while he was raping her for $2. Okay. Yeah. Um, And ransacking her home. And yeah. Yeah. But can you imagine how like. What his demeanor must have been for her to go through that and still describe him as very yeah, polite. and have that stand out, yeah. Yeah, odd. Uh-huh. So a week later, a, 32, ugh, a 32-year-old barmaid who worked in a lo- local tavern was leaving work around 12.20 a.m., midnight 20, because I know you okay. like that. I do like um, that. <laughs> this was on April 9th. Okay. By April 13th, she was reported missing. But the same day she was reported missing, she was actually found in an empty hog house behind the tavern that she worked in. Oh. This is really sad to me, but her cause of death was a blow to her abdomen that was so forceful that it ruptured her liver. Ouch. That's Can awful. you imagine how much force that takes? No. Ugh. That's a lot. Um... Richard was a frequent customer at the tavern that she worked at, and he had been on the carpentry crew that had built that hog house. So he naturally is on the list of people to be questioned by police. Okay. 
After an initial discussion, police asked him to stay around for further questioning, and they would come back and follow up with him in a few days. On the 19th, they went to the Christie Hotel to have another interview with him. They had missed him by just a few hours because he's gone. Yeah. he had cleared out his room and left town just before they got there. Well, Richard's not dumb. I will say that. Yeah. I mean, he knows. Like, yeah. He knows. So upon searching his room, they found a radio and some costume jewelry that the little old woman had reported stolen from her home as well as several other items that were reported as stolen in burglaries around town. Okay. So they know. So, I mean, they know that this guy is the guy who's doing this. Yeah. So Richard goes back to Chicago to stay with Martha. He arrived with this wild story about how he couldn't stay there anymore because a local crime syndicate tried to get him to sell narcotics for them and he refused and he had to run for his life. (laughs) Where did he get that story? I have no idea, man. (laughs) Oh, man. And he knows Martha's going to buy it because Martha sounds like, you know. Oh, she absolutely bought it. And so, of course, they're going to offer him shelter because, holy crap, you escaped the cartel. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Martha's husband, Gene, had previously served in the Navy, and he thought work as a merchant marine would be perfect for Richard. So on April 25th, he took Richard to the Union Hall to apply to be an apprentice seaman. As part of the application, Richard had to be fingerprinted, photographed, and undergo a physical examination. Richard was granted a letter of authority that granted him the ability to work. And immediately he found work aboard a ship. Okay. Uh, He leaves. His first voyage with the ship came to a sudden halt. And can you guess why? Uh, He either fought someone or stole from someone or assaulted someone. Actually, it was not crime this time. He was stricken with appendicitis and they had to airlift him to the hospital. Oh, wow. Yeah. that's, That's a surprise. Yeah, so he was evacuated by helicopter to St. Joseph's Hospital in Hancock, Michigan, and had an emergency appendectomy. All right, Um, well, his drinking couldn't have helped that either. Does drinking contribute to that? I don't think it does. Uh, Yeah, drinking can affect your... Oh, did you say appendicitis? Yeah. Oh, I thought you said... uh, What's that other one? Um, pancreatitis pancreatitis i had that yeah no this is appendicitis i don't i'm gonna have to research this maybe separately i don't know that they even know what causes appendicitis still no i think it's just random yeah so that's just shit luck for richard although at this point that does not even begin to total his karmic debt right now no It doesn't. After being discharged from the hospital, Richard returned to stay with Martha and her family again. Um, On May 20th, he was actually well enough to rejoin the crew of the ship until June 14th. And now is when the crime comes in. Because on June 14th, he was kicked off the boat and sent ashore for getting drunk and fighting with one of the officers. See, I was right in my first guess, but... That only applied to the second kickoff. It just took him some time. He needed yeah. time to get He needed to warm up. He needed to warm up. His appendix needed to be taken out. He just needed, <laughs> he just needed that time. 
And I mean, he needed to develop his sea legs because arguably yeah. maybe he wasn't causing any trouble because he was vomiting too much to be. Probably, like or he wasn't feeling well enough to. Yeah. Yeah. A quote from his discharge papers says, steady drinker, warned on two occasions, but continues drinking when drunk <laughs> is looking for trouble. So uh, people can read him. Oh, 100%. And they all know that he cannot control himself. Oh, absolutely he cannot. Man. Um, he briefly stayed at a flop house before taking a train to Michigan to visit. I think this is actually kind of sweet, and I wonder if he kind of felt something for this woman. But he went to go visit a nurse's aide that he had met while he was in the hospital. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I wish that's this nice. had turned into a love story, but it didn't. Where then Richard fell in love and they lived happily ever after and, and he his quit days drinking of and fighting wayward and pointing knives were at people. Over. Yeah. Yep. Um, she ended up giving him $80 to get him by until he was able to find work because, by the way, Richard is a master at painting himself as the victim. Okay. And so one more time, he goes back to Martha's house in Chicago. Ugh. I, I love that you made that sound right now because I think that is how the family was feeling. Because he wasn't working and he would spend his days hanging outside with some local teenage boys. That I didn't mention this before because this is the only time they really come into play, but Martha had two teenage daughters. And so their suitors would hang out around the house because obviously the boys want to hang out where the girls are. And Richard would sit outside with them and just tell them stories about how tough he was and he would show them the switchblade he always carried with him and this big knife he would carry on his belt. And I'm pretty sure this was just about him trying to look cool to the younger kids. He's like I said, he's very vain. He cares what people think about him. Yeah, yeah. But in general, he just wasn't really doing much with himself. He was just hanging out at Martha's, bragging to teenage to older boys. Okay. Yeah. So I think um Gene and Martha had enough of his shit. <laughs> so Martha and I love this because this is so like 1960s housewife she cleaned and folded and neatly packed all of his clothing and suitcases and then she and Jean drove him down to the shipyard and left him there <laughs> like, go find yourself some work <laughs> so this brings us to July 11th 1966 okay um at this point, Richard had actually, this was a couple days after they dropped him off, but he had spent They're a couple like, of days. Bye. Yeah, he was waiting around the union hall for a job. I mean, he was actually waiting, trying to find a job. Well, at least he was doing, at least he was trying to like. Oh, yeah. Do that. Because dude wants to drink and he needs money to do that. That's, well, he can just steal it too, as we've learned in the past. You know what's funny? He doesn't. That I know. Steal he anymore? Ever steal alcohol? He always purchases it. Again, the things that this man does lawfully <laughs> and right. oh, so weird. At this point, Richard had actually also been bouncing around a few different taverns and inns, trying to find a room to stay in, but everything was full. So I actually kind of feel bad for him at this point because he's homeless. One place, Pauline's said that he could leave his bags there, but they didn't have a room for him. But 
because some of the men staying there were sailors, he could check back at the end of the night to see if any of them had found a job and moved out, she would save a room for him. Oh, okay. So he comes back at the end of the day and unfortunately, no vacancies. But Richard, like I said, he's he's not dumb. I w- he wasn't a genius by any means. He was actually quite average in intelligence, but he was charming. And I think he had an innate gift to like see weaknesses because a lot of these people who are predators are good at that. So the owner of this place was a woman. Her name was Pauline, hence Pauline's. Yeah. She had a disabled son and Richard saw the son and started playing an innocent game of catch with him. And the son was enamored with Richard. Really? So much so that Pauline was like, you know what? My son seems to like you. I guess I don't have a room for you, but you can sleep on the closed-in porch. So he at least had a a covered place to sleep. Well, I guess that was nice. So now that he actually had a place secured for a place to sleep, he wanders off to do some drinking. Of course. And he came back at about 1230 a.m. Okay. The next day is July 12th. By mid-afternoon that day, he had been waiting around all morning trying to find a job. He is waiting for a job. He wants to be assigned a ship. And finally, one of the union reps says, hey, this ship is leaving today. They need someone. You're assigned. Go. So Richard is able to get a ride down to the ship with a sailor that happened to be there. But he arrives at the ship and they tell him, oh, um, that job was already assigned to someone you're just a backup in case he didn't show up, but uh, he just showed up. So we don't need to. And I go. bet this makes him angry. Oh, yeah. He was pit. I would be too. Well, yeah. Yeah. Because essentially what they did is they gave him this job that they knew was not actually available, which meant that he was not in the union hall anymore. So if another actual real oh, job came up, he's yeah. missing out on an opportunity for it. Yeah, that makes sense. So um, the same man – or they allowed him to eat a meal in the mess hall, but then they were like, yeah, you uh, get the fuck out. Yeah. So that same sailor actually offered to give him a ride back up to where they were, and Richard says, take me back to the union hall. And this man is like, um, the union hall is closed, and Richard's like, I don't care, just take me back there. So he drops him off about a block away from where the union hall was, and huh. – Again, Richard doesn't have a place to stay, and he's just got his bags with him. So, again, Union Hall's closed. He's not getting a job tonight, so now he has to flip and start looking for a place to sleep. Again, okay. I feel kind of bad for Richard at this point. Like I don't. This is I, just I feel a this little is bad. karma. This is karma. I mean... It's never going to be enough. I do not feel bad for Richard. This is what ha- life choices. Life I should choices. say the appearance of what Richard is doing right now is that he is genuinely trying to find work. He's trying to find a place to stay. He's trying to be a meaningful member of society. And I should say if that were true, I would feel bad for him. If okay, I will give you that. If that were true, I would feel bad for him. I don't think that's it's not why. true. I don't and we'll true. find out exactly how untrue it is when we get to the thirteenth. But we're still on the twelfth right now. We wouldn't be talking about him if that was true. So yeah, 
Um, so he ended up checking around at some local fuel stations and finally a shell station offered like, Hey, uh, you can leave your bags here overnight, but you can't stay here cause it's a fuel station. Richard ended up sleeping outside in a bed. Um, and there's no like definitive, this is where he slept. Uh-huh. The general consensus is that there was a park really close to the union hall and people think he slept on a bench there. Okay. This is the middle of summer, so it's not really cold, so he's fine. I think this is kind of funny. Before he went to sleep that night, he actually stopped in a casino lounge to try and get some food. He Uh ordered his food, and it was taking a while. And I think you can identify with this. When you're hangry, you want food and you want to now. Yeah. And if you've been waiting too long, you get more hangry. Yeah. So the owner of this place didn't speak that good of English. He usually had his wife deal with all of the English speakers, but she was out doing something else. So when Richard flags him down and goes, dude, what is taking so long with the food? Who even works here? The man gave him some smart ass remark like, it's none of your business. It doesn't matter who works here. It doesn't matter who owns this place. And so Richard, very unhappy, storms out without waiting for his food because he just didn't want to wait anymore. So when he went to bed, I bed very loosely, when he went to sleep in the park that night, he had also not had dinner. So Richard is a hangry, angry man. Uh, The next morning, he went back to the shell station to retrieve his bags and he made some small talk with the attendant working. He turns on the charm and the attendant says, you know what? Use the washroom that we have. Go ahead, clean yourself up. So Richard goes back there. He showers. Not showers. He gives himself like a sink shower, like he wets his hair and he shaves and kind of freshens himself up for the day because he – remember, he is still job hunting. He still needs to look presentable. And like I said, this is like the most effort that I've seen Richard put into anything in his whole life at this point, except for maybe drinking. He puts a lot of effort into drinking. I was going to (laughs) say – um so after two days of either no leads or wasted time he's he goes and he sits outside of the union hall waiting for it to open the second it opens he walks inside to the union rep who sent him down to the ship the day before and he starts yelling at him and he's like what the hell you sent me to this job you knew it wasn't available and the man had to um basically shut him down and I think that the the main reason that Richard was able to even get this far with his anger is that he was, like I said, he was hangry and angry and that gave him some fuel. But as his parole officer said, he could not face down a mouse when he was sober and unarmed. And I think he was sober and unarmed. So he kind of got his anger out, but then he didn't have the energy to do anything more than that. He ends up calling Gene and Martha and he says, Gene, can you please just come down here? And I know that you have pull and influence. Can you please come down here and help me find a job? It's been days. I'm not getting any leads. I could really just use your help. So Martha and Gene do. They drive down with the intention of, you know what? Let me see what my words can do for you. You can't come back and stay with us, but we'll see if we can help. That's still very nice of them. Yes. So they show up, Richard hops inside their car, and he just vents for 30 minutes. And finally, Gene is like, you know what, Um, 
the union hall is open. I feel really good about today. Here's $25 so that you have a place to sleep because Richard was like, I just don't, it's been days. I haven't been able to get a job. I'm probably just going to sleep on the beach tonight. And Jean's like, here's $25 for lodging. Get out of my car and go find a job, please. Still all those things, very nice of them to do. Drive down there, try to help them, give them money for, yeah. Yeah. So now Richard with his $25, he goes down to the shipyard inn, which is a tavern and rooming house that was actually on the nicer end. It was nicer than most of the other places that he had been looking into, but now he has money. So it was 10.30 a.m. And I rescind what I said before because now Richard has money. And 10.30 a.m., there's still a full day of Union Hall jobs being posted. But he decides to say, fuck Uh, it. uh I'm tired of waiting for a ship. So he goes to a bar and he drinks $9 worth of drinks. Of course. As he drinks, he gets loud and boisterous and starts bragging about how he has a $1,300 check coming to him. Don't know where he gets this number. Don't know why he says this. But he starts bragging about how he got fired from a job. I don't know why you brag about being fired from a job. Yeah. And he says that he was fired because he stabbed the first mate, which is another lie. But that he had $1,300 coming to him from this job and he was just waiting for the check to come. Where he stabbed somebody. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh-huh. After drinks, he went and he spoke with the owner of the shipyard in about renting a room. She ends up uh, asking him, are you looking at a nightly rental or a weekly rental? And now all of a sudden he's he's a, a merchant marine again. And he goes, well, you know, I'm waiting for a ship, even though literally a couple hours earlier he was like, fuck it. But I now know. he was like, I'm not doing it anymore. Yeah. But now, now he, he says, to- you know, I'm waiting for a ship, but I haven't had the best luck. I don't know when I'm going to end up getting one. So I better rent this place for a week. He rents it for $11 for the week, which I'm like, man, wow. I wish my rent was that cheap. Yeah. Oh. And now I'm going to switch gears. And I'm going to tell you about a woman named Ella Mae Hooper. Okay. Around the same time when Richard is drinking and he's um, renting his room, Ella Mae Hooper was a woman who was very similar to Richard. Uh, she was 53 years old. So she was quite a bit older. Yeah. But um, she dropped out of school when she was in eighth grade. Okay. And she was from Tennessee. So she actually had a Southern drawl as well, which made her stand out in Chicago, where that was not very common at the time. Sure. She was also a barfly who would drink whatever she could get, and she frequented a bar called Pete's Tap. Oh, my God. They're soulmates. Uh, I don't think so. (laughs) Oh, okay. (laughs) Uh, Pete's Tap was actually a favorite spot for Richard as well. I mean, these two are very, very similar. I was – yeah, I'm saying, like, hello. (laughs) So on July 13th, she was going to an establishment known as Sokograd. Uh, I think this might have been a pawn shop. And a few months earlier on her birthday, she had bought herself a 22 caliber gun for herself for her birthday. Uh, she pawned it for money, probably for drinks, honestly. And this day on the 13th, she was going to buy it back. She wanted her gun back. Okay. And so she buys her gun back and she goes across the street to Pete's Tap House to throw back a couple of beers. At the same time, Richard was there 
also drinking. But Ella May actually didn't know him, didn't want anything to do with him. She didn't even really notice him. Okay. So she leaves Pete's tap room and she heads to another bar where she has some more drinks. And then finally she decides to start her trek home. This is when Richard approached her. And he asks where she's going. And like any woman walking alone, she doesn't say a damn thing. She just keeps walking. And he gets angry at this. He says, when I talk, I want answers. Oh, that doesn't sound so charming. She continues to ignore him and just kind of picks up her pace a little bit. LMA's 53 years old. She's not taking no shit oh. from this young man. who uh, I think he was 24 at this point. Okay. 25? 25. Yeah. This guy's half her age. She doesn't have the energy for his bullshit. So at this point, because she has continued to ignore him, Richard's like, you know, come have a drink with me. I noticed you were drinking. We can go in. We'll share something. It'll be fun. She, at this point, she actually finally responds. She says, no, I don't want to go. He asks again come have a drink with me. And this time it's really more of a demand. And again, more forcefully, she says no. So then he comes up right behind her and he says, listen, I have a knife in your back and you are going to come back to the shipyard in with me and you are going to have a drink with me. And if you don't, I will stab you right here in the street and no one will even know it was me because look at all these people around. It could be anyone. Jeez, that's quite the invitation there. So at this point, she she allows herself to be directed to the shipyard inn. I kind of would too. And she later reported that he said at least 25 times that he wouldn't hurt her if she just did what he told her to. It's almost like he's conflicted with himself. I'm I'm not sure. He's a strange man. So, like he, it's almost like he doesn't want to be doing this, but he's doing it. Yeah. And I'm wondering, so we know that when he's drinking, he gets a little bit more bravado. I'm wondering uh-huh. if he was only really buzzed at this point. So he had like enough to initiate, yeah. but then it was like he had to keep apologizing because he wasn't drunk enough. Yeah. Um. Anyway, she offers him the money from her purse and he says he's not interested because he has a $1,300 check in his pocket, which is a damn lie. Yeah, again, with his 13. Yeah, so they go into his room. She puts down her bag on the dresser because he tells her, put your bag down on the dresser and sit down. So she puts her bag down. She goes and she sits on the bed. He has a paper bag that he opens that has a couple of cans of beer in it. He opens two, hands her one, and they just kind of sip on it and they chat. And this is the weirdest discussion I have ever seen. After he threatened her to go to the room... And now they're just sitting there chatting it up? This is... Listen to this conversation. Okay. He says, do you like younger men? She says, I've got nothing against younger men. And I love her attitude because I feel like this is me being sassy. uh, When people ask me dumb questions, so I give them dumb answers. Um, And he says, would you like to live with a young man? She said, I had never thought of it. He asks, if I told you to take your clothes off and get into bed, would you? She says yes, because this nut job has a knife, so of course she's going to listen to him. Yeah. He said, if I let you go, will you tell anyone about this? She says no, because she's a smart lady. Yeah. 
he then offered her out of nowhere, and this is the weirdest fucking thing. He says, I could get you an apartment. I'm a sailor. I make good money. I'd get you an apartment. I'd take care of you. That's weird. Yeah. He said, you know what? Tell you what. Meet me at Pex later. I'll get you an apartment. She's like, I I don't know what Pex is. He's like, uh, yeah, you do. That's the bar that you go to all the time. You were just there earlier tonight. And she's like, you mean Pete's? He's like, yeah, Pete's, whatever. And I have to tell you that this is a pet peeve of mine when people are corrected on the name of something or the pronunciation of something and they don't accept it. Um, so what ends up happening is um, he does tell her to take off her clothes and get in bed. And then her quote is, they engaged in automatic sexual intercourse. Automatic sexual. Yeah, that's odd. I would take that as like emotionless, very robotic missionary position. He only lasted a minute or two before he got out of bed and put his pants on. He He orders her to get dressed. He gives her a paper bag and says, take this with you. Go to Pex because he's an idiot and he doesn't know how to pronounce the word Pete's like she just fucking told him. And he says, wait for me. And he said, if you don't meet me there, you're going to be in big trouble because I don't like no woman to lie to me. So she's like, "Okay, I'll meet you there. Okay, yeah. So they leave, and the whole thing is she was supposed to go wait for him at Pete's, Pex, whatever. Um, And he was going to go cash his check and meet her there so he could get her an apartment, which is still the weirdest thing. That is so weird. So they leave the shipyard in. She goes left. He goes right. She's not going to wait around for this dude. She goes home. Yeah, I would too. Or to the police station, but whatever. No, she just went home. <laughs> I think she went yeah. to the police later. But yeah. so she gets home. She takes the paper bag that he gave her and opens it. And it's more of the beer that they had drank. And she's like, I don't want this. She goes to her purse and opens it. And her gun is missing. And that is going to be where I stop part one. I can only imagine what happens with that gun. Yeah. Um, so that was... The beginning of Richard Speck's life leading up to July 13th, 1966. And I'm assuming something big happens. July 13th, 1966 was a very bad night. Oh, no. So in part two, I will talk about um, a little bit of the neighborhood to give you a layout of uh, this area that they were in, a little bit of the community. Um, I'll go into the women that are involved in uh, the horrific massacre that occurred on Jan- on July 13th. And uh, we will talk about Richard's trial and conviction. And um, yeah. All right. Oh, I was not Richard. prepared for this. dug myself in a deeper hole than i thought i was gonna get into but you know what that's okay again again when it tells you clearly when you look it up oh lord crime of the century i should have known you should have known yeah so um i will see or we will see because um cat needs daylight every now and then uh i'll drag her out of her hole in the ground 
two weeks from now, and we will see all of you then. Yay! <laughs> You're like a cicada. I am. <laughs> Come out to screech uh, for a then you go back in the ground. Yeah. <laughs> Woo! All right. All right. Thank you. Bye, everyone. <laughs> Bye.